Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk! Good morning and welcome to Money Talk. Here we go again for Thursday morning, the 13th of July. This is Peter Lewis welcoming you to my podcast. And thank you for making us one of the most listened to financial podcasts in Hong Kong. You can find more details on the program and get in touch through my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. And that's where you'll find my daily newsletter, which is full of business and finance news from across the Asia-Pacific region. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, consumer price inflation in the US dropped to its slowest pace in more than two years last month. The annual inflation rate slowed to 3% in June compared to 4% in May and below expectations of 3.1%. Inflation has fallen sharply from a peak of more than 9% in June 2022 and the latest reading marks the slowest pace since March 2021. India's annual consumer inflation rate accelerated for the first time in five months to 4.81% in June, from an upwardly revised 4.31% in May and above market forecasts. Food inflation increased to 5% from 2.9% in May. On a sequential basis, consumer prices in India rose by 1% from a month earlier in June, accelerating from an upwardly revised 0.6% increase in May. And that was the largest monthly gain in consumer prices since April 2022. The Bank of Canada raised the target for its overnight interest rate by 25 basis points to 5% yesterday, as expected by economists. That's the highest level of interest rates there since 2001. The move follows a surprise 25 basis point rate hike at the previous meeting and extends its tightening cycle after the brief pause in March and April. Chinese Premier Li Chang met with senior executives from the country's leading technology firms, including Alibaba, ByteDance, Metroan and JD.com on Wednesday. He urged local governments to provide more support to the internet firms, calling them trailblazers of the era, while pushing the companies to support the real economy through innovation. He also told them authorities would seek to make regulation of platform firms more transparent and predictable and reduce compliance costs in order to promote the sound development of the platform economy. On today's programme, I'm joined by Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory, and Nick Marrow, live lead for global trade at the Economist Intelligence Unit. With a view from Taiwan, it's Ross Feingold, Business Development Director at SafePro Group in Taipei. On Wall Street overnight, the major U.S. stock indices hit 15-month highs, buoyed by quarter-than-expected inflation. The S&P 500 advanced 0.7% to end at 4,472. The Dow traded 86 points higher, that's a quarter of a percent, to close at 34,347. The Nasdaq Composite popped 1.2% to 13,919. The below-forecast CPI and core CPI figures sent Treasury yields sharply lower and the yield curve steepened. The two-year Treasury yield, which moves with interest rate expectations, fell 14 basis points to a two-week low of 4.73%, and it's now down 40 basis points from its recent high. The yield on the 10-year note fell 11 basis points to 3.87%, and the 2-10-year to portion of the yield curve jumped from minus 91 basis points to minus 84 basis points within just 10 minutes. 
The US dollar index, which measures the greenback against a basket of six currencies, fell 1.5% to hit its weakest point in 15 months after the softer-than-expected US inflation data. And the Japanese yen continued its recent strength into a fifth day, gaining 1.3% to trade at 138.5 per US dollar. That's its strongest level in a month, as traders bet that the Bank of Japan could soon begin its pivot away from its ultra-loose monetary policy. The yen has climbed over 4% so far this month, more than in raising losses of 3.6% in June. The pound hit $1.30 for the first time since April 2022. Sterling surged half a percent against the greenback on Wednesday and has risen 2.3% against the dollar since the start of July, as markets bet on several more rate rises for the Bank of England and just one more for the Federal Reserve. The euro rose 1.1% against the dollar to $1.11 and a third of a cent. That's the highest level since March 2022. And the Chinese yuan extended gains into a fifth day, strengthening 0.6% to 7.16 and a half renminbi in both Shanghai and the offshore markets. And the yuan is up 1.2% so far this month. Stocks in Hong Kong rose for a third day on hopes that Beijing will roll out fiscal stimulus to support the economy. The Hang Seng climbed 201 points, or 1.1%, to 18,861. And futures markets are predicting the rally to continue this morning with a gain of over 300 points. That's 1.6% for the Hang Seng at the open. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite was down 0.8% at 3,196. And elsewhere in the markets, Brent crude oil has risen above $80 a barrel for the first time since May, and gold is at $1,957 an ounce. That's its highest in three weeks. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter, which you'll find at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Let's welcome our guests, and I'm pleased to say we have with us live from Greece, Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory. Morning, Andrew. Oh, basically live, yes, sort of, sort of deadish. Yes, I'm delighted to be here, Peter. <laughs> Even though it's two o'clock in the morning. We're very delighted. Three o'clock. Three o'clock. <laughs> Thank you for staying awake for us. I'm sure you're being fortified <laughs> by a nice pina colada somewhere. <laughs> Also with us, very live from Hong Kong, is Nick Marrow, who's the lead for global trade at the Economist Intelligence Unit. Morning to you, Nick. Good morning. Uh, let's start with uh, U.S. inflation data. Consumer price inflation in the U.S. dropped to its slowest pace in more than two years last month, helped by cheaper used cars. The annual inflation rate slowed to 3% in June from 4% in May and below expectations of 3.1%. Inflation in the US has fallen sharply now from a peak of more than 9% in June last year. And the last latest reading marks the slowest pace since March 2021. The slowdown is partly due to a high base effect from last year when a surge in energy and food prices pushed the headline inflation rate to 1981 highs of 9.1%. Energy costs slumped 16.7%. Also, inflation slowed for food. Uh, That was 5.7% compared to 6.7% in May and also for shelter. The core inflation rate, which strips out volatile food and energy costs, dropped from 5.3% in May to 4.8%, the lowest since October 2021. 
um, Andrew, I suspect at three o'clock in the morning, talking about sequential inflation rates and uh, annual consumer price inflation is not the, the brightest of conversations. But nevertheless, I don't know what type of economist you consider yourself to be. But I suppose if you're a monetarist and you're a fan of Milton Friedman, you will say this is absolutely to be expected, wouldn't you? Because money supply surged during the, uh, the pandemic and the last few months it's turned negative. So it's totally expected, isn't it, that inflation would start coming down? Absolutely not, actually. I'm a, I'm a dedicated, passionate non-monetarist, and I do believe that the variations, variations in the money stock have very little impact on inflation. Now, let me pick out something which I found it quite interesting. The PCE, you remember PCE? That was I do. That's the Fed's one, isn't it? Boy or girl or Fed dropped completely out of the picture, so I went back just to be contrarian, and actually the core PCE hasn't really moved. Mm. Okay, now the, the actual PC has come down following the CPI, okay, and of course the core CPI has come down, as you indicated out, but the core CPE hasn't. So mm. I have to look at that before I get incredibly excited, and also, uh, that's my favorite of all favorites, we have the low base effect on the CPI which is always comes to the rescue when incredibly exciting thing happens, and they're not really that exciting. Nonetheless, okay, the CPI has been coming down for several months running. So mm -hmm. I think uh, I don't want to take the, cherry, the, the punch ball away. It looks interesting. So if you're not a monetarist, and therefore this is nothing to do with money supply, um, what is it to do with it? Is, it, is that the, the entire explanation, this base effect from a year ago, or are there other things going on? No, no, no. Uh, Peter, Peter with, without getting incredibly, even at three o'clock, I can bore you to death, believe me, and I can bore you, your clients to death, okay, is, is that uh, the velocity of circulation in the United States has been falling for a long, 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 long time. And I don't see any correlation now between prices going up just because the money stock growth tended to decelerate again. So let's leave that out. Okay, we have several things there, including my favorite. The United States must be the only place where the CPI is affected by the price of second-hand motor cars. I was going to ask about that. Why is that so important? Why is that such a big impact? Well, there, there you go. I mean, the, the Americans are, are wedded to their cars, and therefore they're wedded to their mm. prices. So, yeah, it, this is part of the transport cost. That has come down. So, you know, I don't want to trivialize this. There are a number of things that look good, okay, and a number of things that one needs to take a little bit more advisance on. And mm. I'm not surprised if the Fed looks at those and says, <clears throat> are we going to increase interest rates again soon? Mm. Nick, help, help us understand this. I mean, whatever the reason, whether it's because of money supply falling or you, prices of used cars falling, the fact of the matter is uh, this overall disinflationary trend is, is continuing, isn't it? We've pulled the headline rate now all the way down to 3%, the core rate to 4.8%. That's the lowest in year and a half. Clearly, there is in the US now a disinflationary trend. I think that's the hope uh, and the hope that, you know, this will continue, uh, given how much, you know, this has been the talking point for years and years now. Um, and I think even talking about base effects, uh, even around this last, you know, around this time last year, we were hoping that base effects from the previous year would be kind of, you know, playing into the discussion. Um, so, yeah, um, I, I think that when it comes to, say, you know, the Fed's decision um, making process over the next couple of months, um, markets and ourselves, we've, we've priced in, you know, another interest rate hike um, to bring the, I guess, the terminal rate up to, you know, 5, 5.25 or 5.25 to 5.5. 5. 
um, I guess the hope is that that will be enough um, and there won't be any need for further tightening given that we're on this downward trend. But I mean, just like Andrew said, um, there's a lot of other factors going on which could you know, necessitate further tightening um, given that the Fed still really seems quite committed to this idea that they're not done yet. Um, I think with this one data release, like we've always seen um, you know, previously, um, one data release can be important, but it might not be the deciding factor in terms of, um, you know, what what's actually going to happen. Um, I think particularly looking at the jobs report from last week, uh, there's a lot of anxiety that there's still a lot of heat in the economy that needs to be cooled down. Um, so overall, I personally think that, yeah, this is, you know, a sign in the right direction. Um, it's, it's encouraging for people who are hoping, like ourselves, that, you know, the interest rate hikes are going to end soon. Um, but the Fed has surprised us before. Um, mm. So uh, I think we need to keep an eye on things for sure. I mean, it's probably going to take a while, though, isn't it, before inflation gets back to the Fed's target at the 2%. It's certainly not going to be this year, and it may not even be next year. No, that's right. Um, I think there are some encouraging signs globally. So one of the things that we've been following very closely are the decline in, say, global shipping freight rates, uh, which are now not even at pre-pandemic levels, but below pre-pandemic levels. Um, and a lot of that fuels some of the supply-side-driven inflation that we saw um, over 2021, 2022, as well as the fact that, you know, in markets like China, producer price inflation has been so consistently negative that, um, you know, the hope is these trends will then ultimately influence how a lot of the inflationary forces are forming uh, in markets like the U.S. Um, so I think, you know, maybe if we give it some time, um, indeed, we're going to get down to that 2% target. Um, but the question is, um, I guess, does the Fed think we're on track uh, to achieve that goal without further rate hikes. Um, I think at this point, um, there's enough optimism to say yes. Um, this, this might be, you know, um, we're, we're eventually moving uh, and we don't need any further policy tightening to get there. Um, but like I said, you know, anything can really happen in the next couple of months. So do you think they could actually achieve what many people thought a while ago was impossible? And that is to get inflation back down to target without tipping the economy into recession? <laughs> That's been one of the biggest mysteries, uh, for sure, uh, particularly when I talked to our U.S. team, uh, in the sense that I think we weren't alone in expecting uh, U.S. economic growth to not be as resilient as it's proven um, over the past couple of months. Uh, and that's particularly when you're looking at, say, Asian export data, which has been in sustained contraction uh, since really late last year. Um, other high-frequency indicators, again, global shipping freight rates, whatever, which would have suggested a strong moderation um, in you know, consumer demand. But what we're still seeing is, you know, pretty strong resilience in U.S. consumption, um, U.S. economic fundamentals, um, and this ability for, you know, the Fed to almost engineer the impossible, this idea that you're cooling the economy without pushing it into recession. I think we're still, at the EIU, still concerned about how Q3 growth is going to materialize. Um, there still looks like, um, you know, the, the economy will have to absorb kind of the shocks of, you know, the impact of these rate hikes over the past couple of quarters um, and you know the inflation uh, turning downwards is, is one aspect of that but the the kind of you know question that is unanswered is is there a risk of policy correction um, is there a risk that things will cool a bit more rapidly uh, than Fed officials were expecting and will that be enough to kind of push the US uh, into a bit more of a dire situation than you know we're expecting but I think on balance 
the story for the U.S. economy in particular has been one of, um, you know, better than expected performance, uh, particularly when benchmarked against people's views in late 2022. Mm. Andrew, if, if, if you're a typical U.S. consumer, and, and that's, you know, one of the areas that, you know, the economists are concerned about, consumer spending, if you're a typical household, you're a typical consumer, I guess you don't really care, do you, about sequential inflation month on month and annual inflation compared to a year ago. What you really care about uh, is the absolute price level of, of what you're paying. And when you, if you're a consumer and you look back to more normal times or more normal levels, because things weren't normal at all last year, the fact is you're paying a lot more um, for, for things than you were, say, back in 2019 and the pandemic, about 20% more, I think. And that's m- m- furthermore outstripping any wage growth you've got. So really, um, households and consumers, they don't feel particularly great at the moment, do they? Which is going to have an impact on the economy. I was wondering if this, this had a question in it, and the answer is, is yes, it is. And the question is incredibly simple. You know, when you bring inflation down, when you bring inflation down, all you do is uh, you bring down the current increases in prices. Mm. You don't bring them back to where they were before yep. a year ago. So you are absolutely right. Very frequently, this can be a kind of a meaningless exercise by saying, now inflation is zero, and then I say, yes, but I pay for milk and shoes, mm. little luxuries for my family, twice as I yep. used to pay a year ago. So <clears throat> what are you going to do about that? And the answer is, is absolutely nothing. That's why I am absolutely thrilled that China is, if you look at the Chinese, both the CPI and the WPI numbers, reads, as Woody Allen said, reads straight out of the Tibetan Book of the Dead. I mean, <laughs> they're absolutely horrible. <laughs> it is odd, isn't it? Sorry, I'm not, I'm not being facetious here. Okay, prices are going down. So, in other words, if somebody says, am I better off? I say, yes, you are, actually, because not only they're not increasing, but perhaps they're sliding down to what they were before. So, uh, this is the, uh, the centrocentric kind of thing that we are all suffering from inflation. Hmm. If you ask the average Japanese and the average Chinese, they will tell you together, oh, no, we don't. Hmm. But isn't it strange in a globalized economy now, or what's supposed to be a more globalized economy, we have such a sharp divergence in various advanced economies uh, between inflation. Here in the US, as we've just seen, it's at 3%, but in China it's zero. And then if you go to the UK, they're really struggling. It's almost 9% there. How how do you explain such massive divergence between, you know, three uh, sort of big economies? Because these are very different economies, and the, non, the, the notion that because you happen to trade a lot, and the notion that you have uh, 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 flows of finance between you, this is going to equalize inflation rates, is absolutely insanely stupid. Okay, Japan didn't have, doesn't have an inflation for nearly, I've forgotten, I just 15 years. Mm. Okay, hello? I mean, and still, it's a very important part of the global economy. So is China. Okay, yes, things are different and they move in different ways. Also, the exchange rates are very, very important in, in what takes place uh, in, during this time, mm-hmm. as well as expectations and as well as real interest rates. Oh, God, I sound like an economist. You know, it is complex and therefore it is stupid to think that the things do move together. No, they don't. Should we be afraid of deflation in China? Uh, no, okay, uh, for the very simple reason 
that however much people believe that China is driven by uh, exports and by the flows of international trade, it isn't. Mm. Okay, let's bury that uh, once and forever. So in other words, the Chinese deflation might be good when it comes out to export movements, okay, uh, export price movements uh, pushed forward also by the by the weekend by the weak uh, renminbi but the reason why i don't think china will face let's say a systemic deflation is that it has a huge capacity to increase its fiscal deficit because mm. it continues to be one of the major lenders to the world lenders don't go bankrupt hello mm. argentina you hear that lenders borrowers do okay mm. nick what, what do you think uh, the, the inflation data out of china consumer price inflation zero um producer price inflation uh lowest in what over seven years now is is china on the verge of deflation i think i take a little bit of a different approach than andrew uh just in the sense that um i mean historically we have seen correlation between producer price inflation and say u.s core inflation um, i think that relationship is definitely changing um and there may, needs to be a reassessment of how that linkage exists um and so you know there might be potential of a lag effect uh later this year um but in terms of being worried around deflationary forces impacting the rest of the world Given that consumer price inflation is so high in a lot of China's, you know, major trade partners and export destinations, um, I think framing it as a worry is maybe, um, you know, not the right way to, to look at it. it. It's more so this might be something that, you know, assists in, if, if there is a relation, uh, bringing down these price pressures, um, just given the, you know, historical linkages. At the same time, I think based on, you know, some of the inflationary trends that we've seen, particularly in the U.S. and other developed markets, given that consumers aren't responding to inflation in the way that, you know, traditional economics would kind of suggest, you know, higher prices ultimately should have been kind of a disinflationary force. They haven't been. Uh, people have continued to spend. And I think there has to be, you know, not to get too meta, but like a, a discussion around consumer psychology and confidence and this post-pandemic rebound in terms of spending capacity and spending willingness. Um, so I think the entire debate around inflation, um, Maybe that's for another podcast, um, but that needs to be changed. Um, <laughs> yeah. But when, when we look at China, um, one of the things that we're concerned about essentially is the fact that, um, you know, these infl disinflationary forces or deflationary forces for the producer price index um, are worrisome in the sense that it really illustrates um, kind of the fragility of China's economic rebound since the first quarter. Um, we've always been a little bit pessimistic in terms of the longevity of that rebound. Um, I think the market is now kind of waking up to that as well in the sense that things have fallen back a bit more rapidly than previously expected. Um, but when you look at that 0% growth in CPI in China, it, it really illustrates the demand weakness on the consumption side. Mm. Um, and with the producer price uh, falls, it, it shows that, um, you know, not just that might not just be stemming from demand weakness externally. It might also be stemming from this kind of overcapacity that has really surged in the last couple of years, given the fact that over the pandemic, consumption collapsed, um, and you really did have kind of investments and somewhat export-driven model to get China out of its uh, economic malaise. Um, and so I think from a policy standpoint, that raises a question of, you know, more stimulus is likely needed in order to drive that demand into um, kind of coming back, but what we're seeing from policymakers, I agree with Andrew uh, in that there's a ton of fiscal capacity for China, but policymakers seem very, very hesitant on actually deploying it. Um, mm. We're still seeing a lot of hesitation, both at the central government level and the local government level, in terms of actually 
um, you know, expanding that fiscal firepower, I think because of the heightened expenditure that we saw in China over the past couple of years tied to COVID. Mm -hmm. um, local government finances in particular are, are pretty weak at this point, um, and we're not really seeing enough central government transfers to kind of um, make those local government fiscal buffers um, robust enough in order for them to actually translate into policy. Um, so sure. it's a whole complicated discussion, but a lot going on, yeah. So, Andrew, the government, as, as Nick is saying, the, the, the government seems reluctant to provide fiscal stimulus. I'm wondering, based on what we heard yesterday, whether the government's really now looking to private companies to do it, because we had Premier Li Chang meet with senior executives from the country's leading technology firms. That included Alibaba, ByteDance, Metroan, JD.com yesterday. And Premier Li urged local governments to provide more support to the internet firms. He called them trailblazers of the era, and he pushed the companies to support the real economy through innovation. So is this the clue? Am I right in thinking this is what, um, where the, the government wants the stimulus to come from? It wants it to come from, from in effect, from private companies? Yeah, I think this is, uh, this is unlikely for two reasons. First, of course, you gather all these people in a big room and you say, please go away and spend. <laughs> Why should they? I mean, <laughs> they will all smile politely and they go away and they will spend only if uh, the expectations have changed and the discounted cash flows on present day value against uh, what they are expecting are attractive and therefore they are going to invest. Mm -hmm. So I don't think uh, I don't think they will be they would be advised, let's say, to do this other than to do something to help them along. And to the best of my knowledge, they have been doing this for the private, sorry, for the property sector, but not necessarily for the tech firms which uh, two years ago was, uh, was the whipping boy. Actually, some of the tech firms were the whipping boy for potentially political reasons. But now, clearly, okay, there might be a need to, uh, let's say, try to forgive and forget all this. But, okay, uh, they still have plenty of uh, fiscal munition, okay, to, to, to spend. But they don't want to go down the way of the United States. And for some reason... Okay, despite the fact that China is still a major lender in the world, okay, in the United States it is not. This is very important to emphasize. Okay, somehow they are scared of, uh, of running some internal deficits that will be matched by their external surpluses. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that's the way it works. It's not that easy to do it, but it is doable. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. I think it's a political decision. Okay, But it's all very well, isn't it, for the government to call on these uh, platform companies to be innovative and support the economy when you've just wiped out three quarters of their value, as in the case of Ant Group, for, for example, um, yeah, over that. the last three years. Well, uh, the, the answer is a reluctant yes and a slightly wry smile. Okay, that's why I, I you know, I, I looked at it with interest and I thought, no, that's 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 not. This is not going to work because that will work if you said, okay, we're going to tax corporate taxes by by 50 percent. We're going to give you big subsidies like the Americans are doing, okay, to their tech companies to invest a lot more at home, okay, both in terms of cash and in terms of uh, and in terms of uh, of tax cuts. And perhaps if the Chinese wish to take an example of the states without telling the states that they are taking an example, look at the Americans are doing as far as tech investment is concerned. Mm. Um, they are not asking to invest. They say, here is some money, invest it. 
Okay. Nick, I wanted to ask you before we finish uh, about a trade issue. This Australia-EU trade deal, which has been negotiated, what, for about three years now, it looks like it's stalled, doesn't it? Uh, Talks between Australia and the EU over meat uh, quotas. Uh, The trade minister, Australian trade minister Don Farrell, has cut short a visit to Brussels that was intended to strike a deal. Uh, The Australian Financial Review reported that the European Union refused to offer, improve its offer on better market access for Australian farm exports. Is this coming down to the old thorny issue of the agricultural sector in uh, in Europe and, you know, the protection that the EU likes to provide to its farmers that's stalling this trade deal? I think so. Uh, I'd say that's a fair characterization. I mean, one of the benchmarks that I think all sides are actually looking at is, say, the EU New Zealand free trade deal, um, where even though they were able to ink something which both governments lauded as very positive, I think a lot of New Zealand agricultural producers were quite upset that they didn't get more market access. And so the, the Aussies, I think, have been very um, sensitive to that. Uh, since middle of last year when the news around those negotiations broke. Um, similarly, you have you know the UK-Australia free trade deal, which has promised much greater market access to Australian agricultural producers. Um, and so you have that benchmark to contend with. Um, and the Europeans are also worried about the UK-Aussie free trade deal in, in terms of what that might mean for their own market share. So it's, it's incredibly complex. Um, I think the food lobby in almost every country is incredibly powerful, um, given you know how this might influence domestic political movements. And when you're looking at Australia as well, um, one of the big issues that the government will be facing um, this year is kind of the referendum on Indigenous voices. That's something which they're staking a lot of political credibility on. Um, and I think they're trying to make sure that other parts of the political landscape are working in their favor um, in case anything happens with that Indigenous voice vote. Um, so this is going to be a big sticking point, I think. At the same time, there's a lot of appetite both in Australia and the EU around you know, this idea of de-risking, um, which is you know, an implicit idea of you know, diversifying their export markets, particularly away from China. Um, and so uh, at the fundamental level, there's still a lot of um, impetus for this to get done. Um, but it comes down to politics and whether mm-hmm. the politics can be cleared through in order to get you know, an agreement that um, domestic constituents will be happy with. Andrew, you're over there in Europe. I, I always smile when I hear these things described as free trade deals, because there's certainly in the agricultural sector, it's not free trade at, at all, is it? Yeah, no, no, not not a bit. You know, it's like the Holy Roman Empire, neither Holy nor Roman nor an empire. Yes, so it's neither trade nor not a deal. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm sorry, that was a very short and unhelpful answer. But, yes. <laughs> but true. <laughs> All right, Andrew, we've kept you up long enough. Thank you very much for joining us, and we look forward to talking to you again next week. That's Andrew Ferris, who is the CEO of Econosis Advisory. And you also heard there Nick Marrow, who is lead for global trade at the Economist Intelligence Unit. I'm joined now by Ross Feingold, who is Business Development Director at SafePro Group over in Taipei, Taiwan. Morning to you, Ross. Good morning. Uh, let me ask you about the ASEAN Foreign Ministers uh, meeting, which is going on in uh, Jakarta at the moment in, uh, in, in Indonesia. They seem to be getting themselves completely tied up in knots, don't they, over what to do about Myanmar? Uh, that's right. So this is one of their big annual get-togethers on, on the ASEAN calendars, this annual foreign ministers uh, retreat, as it's often called. Uh, the, you know, they probably don't want to be talking about Myanmar two years after the, the coup and the overthrow of the democratically elected government, but 
they're still stuck on this issue. And part of the problem is that there was an ASEAN five-point plan, as they like to call it, which was uh, created by ASEAN a few months after the coup occurred. And it, it had uh, it called for end to violence, dialogue among the parties, appointment of an ASEAN special envoy, humanitarian assistance, and letting the special envoy or, or the special envoy's team meet with all the parties uh, to the conflict in Myanmar. This plan was basically dead on arrival. It has not been implemented. This has caused a lot of frustration, both within ASEAN, within the uh, national unity government or the opposition in Myanmar, as well as partners further afield like the United States and, and Europe. Uh, but, but it also is a reminder that ASEAN likes to do things uh, unanimous. They call it Asian, ASEAN centrality. Um, but they also have a history of not getting involved in other countries' domestic affairs or their member countries' domestic affairs. Uh, so basically, nobody is happy uh, with ASEAN's performance with regard to the Myanmar conflict, uh, but uh, th there doesn't seem to be a, a real next step. And then to sort of uh, throw another uh, you know, kind of challenge into what to do next. News has been uh, revealed in recent hours that Thailand's outgoing foreign minister, so he's outgoing because the government's about to change. He doesn't even have a, a real uh, likelihood of sustaining what he did, but he went to Myanmar a couple of days ago and he met with the government and he met with uh, Aung San Suu Kyi. Uh, and this is not really how the five-point uh, uh, ASEAN consensus was supposed to operate. So again, it's another thing that's made pretty much everybody, all the relevant stakeholders, unhappy. And uh, you know, the, meanwhile, the, the military government is still entrenched. They're still fighting. Uh, you know, this is a hot war. You know, we, we, we often forget about this because we're so focused on Ukraine over the past uh, 500 days. Uh, but uh, the opposition, opposition groups are armed. They are fighting. And of course, there's the traditional uh, ethnic armed groups as well uh, that have been fighting for you know, pretty much the last 75, 80 years. Uh, and again, there just doesn't seem to be a way out of this conflict. And uh, you know, it's unfortunate. If we go back 10, 10, 10 11 years ago, uh, there was so much hope for Myanmar when the previous uh, military government gave way to a democratically elected government. I mean, those of us in the business community in the region had high hopes, uh, so much potential, uh, mm. so much untapped potential in, in Myanmar. Um, and uh, unless you want to run afoul of some pretty severe U.S. sanctions and sanctions from other countries, uh, the best advice would be don't do business there at the moment. Mm. I mean, some people question the relevance of ASEAN. Um, and I suppose this is a real test of that, isn't it? Because Myanmar is right on its doorstep. Um, and if it can't somehow sort it out and at least appear to come together on what its approach is, it, it really damages sort of ASEAN's credibility, doesn't it? And, and just adds to those uh, calls for, who, from people who say, you know, what, what is the point of ASEAN? It goes back to this this principle of non-interference in domestic politics of, of the ASEAN members. And, and uh, most ASEAN members seem to want to adhere to that. They certainly have adhere, adhered to that historically. Uh, but w when it's a, a situation as dire as this, they struggle to, to maintain uh, uh, adherence to that principle because mm. people are dying and there's violence and, and the situation is it continues to get worse over time rather than improve. Uh, so it's 
it's it's it's a pretty dramatic give and take within ASEAN about what to do in this situation. But it, it does seem that when they're when they ultimately have to make a decision, they don't do anything because they're still erring on the side of caution. What I mean is they're still erring on the side of we're not going to interfere in the domestic affairs of, of, of other countries. And again, that's why we see the. The, what happened in the last couple of days with the outgoing Thai foreign minister even went to visit and, and uh, it was really outside of how the uh, five-point consensus was supposed to work. And, and what's the position of Hong Kong on, on doing business in Myanmar and on companies um, carrying on doing business in Myanmar? Is, and is, there, is there a common position across uh, some of the Asian countries? Well, if we, if we go back historically, there were always companies, uh, whether from Thailand or Singapore or Hong Kong, who were willing to do business uh, in Myanmar. I, and I, I'm saying going back, say, to the 90s or the early 2000s before uh, the first uh, de- democratization occurred around 10 years ago uh but but now again the sanctions are are quite severe and also compared to in the past there's a lot more information flow growth of the internet and social media and and also then the opposition the national unity government is much better positioned than opposition uh in the past uh was to expose this so Again, if you're going to do business there, not only are you going to be potentially violating sanctions, uh, but you're going to be exposed and there's going to be a public relations risk for doing that. Uh, Activists, opposition groups, uh, NGOs, they will expose uh, people who do business with Mm -hmm. the government, with the military government. So that's a significant reputational risk. And uh, if anyone wants to risk the sanctions and the reputational risk, uh, that would be the price to pay for trying to make money in Myanmar or you just take a wait-and-see attitude and, and hope that the situation resolves, returns to democracy, and, and Myanmar will be open for business again. I want to change topics a little bit and talk about travel advisories. The U.S. has just um, issued a travel advisory saying consider reconsider travel to both mainland China and Hong Kong due to the arbitrary enforcement of local laws. And it says also in relation to exit bans from mainland China and the risk of wrongful detentions, China has warned its citizens uh, to be careful about traveling to the U.S. because of entrapments by American law enforcement. I, I'm not sure what they mean by that. Can you shed some light on it? Well, I wasn't exactly sure what what China meant by that either. Uh, Obviously, the the part of this is just political theater to respond to uh, U.S. uh, uh, travel warning. And uh, it has been reported that sometimes uh, there are exit bans on Americans uh, visiting China. Sometimes it's as a result of a business dispute. Sometimes it appears to be related to relatives who are under investigation for uh, some kind of either public corruption or or, – financial crime. Sometimes it could be political. Now, in the United States side, what what they might have been referring to is there are cases in recent years where Chinese nationals have gotten into trouble in the United States, not uh, uh, because of something we might more easily understand, like like, uh, uh, accusation of intellectual property theft, but because of uh, visa fraud charge. And, and, And that typically occurs 
because uh, they're, they're accused of having said uh, something untrue during the interview when they were uh, at the U.S. embassy or consulate in China and, and interviewed for a visa, for example. Uh, the, the one that often comes up is that they're asked, are you a member of the Communist Party or did you ever work for the government? And people have said no. And then years later, they get charged with a crime in the United States. Sometimes it's an additional charge that comes on top of, uh, again, charges for intellectual property theft for example. So you know, federal prosecutors in the U.S., they'll try and add on as many charges as possible. And then we get into these debates about you know, somebody was the member of a, you know, a student association or some kind of other mandatory uh, organization as, uh, when they were in their scholastic or even a professional career as a faculty member, uh, but but it's affiliated with the government because it's it's China, uh, and that a prosecutor in the U.S. wants to aggressively pursue a charge for lying during a, a visa interview. So people who are applying for visas, Chinese nationals, they have to be very careful. You know, the best advice is to be honest during during the mm-hmm. visa interview. Uh, but uh, th- that might be what the the the, the Chinese foreign ministry was referring to, and they call it kind of a entrapment because it's kind of like a uh, you're you're stuck in the visa interview if they ask you like are you a member of the party or you a member of any affiliated organizations if you say yes they might ask more questions and it might make it difficult to actually get the visa and so people have uh, historically have just said no to those questions uh but but again it does present the risk that it, it could come out later and again it often comes out later as, as as an additional charge as part of an investigation into some other wrongdoing we were, we were hoping that following janet yellen's visits to uh, to beijing that ties were going to improve a little bit or at least stabilize but when you hear about these travel advisors and also the latest dispute over uh the u.s extending the emergency status of uh, of hong kong this was uh when donald trump in fact first declared a national emergency after the imposition of the national security law and this executive order has to be reviewed annually um, and President Biden has just gone and, and, and renewed that. Um, China's foreign ministry has slammed that decision as well. It seems like things aren't improving at all. I think part of the problem was was the expect, expectations management from, from the Biden administration in the sense that uh, they made it seem like, oh, we're having dialogue again. Uh, Secretary of State Blinken has gone to China. And now uh, Secretary of the Treasury Yellen has gone to China. And now a recent announcement earlier this week that uh, the climate change ambassador Kerry is going to China. Uh, but I think those of us who, who looked at this a little bit more soberly were, were concerned that, well, what, what do you really expect to get? You know, China is not going to give you much just because you showed up. So for the Biden administration, it seemed like uh, uh, they wanted to sell to the public public that the dialogue, that just the fact that we're having a dialogue is a great achievement, but they knew that uh, you know, most of the issues have not gone away. And in fact, they knew that they would have to continue to take uh, certain actions or make announcements like extending the uh, uh, executive order with regard to Hong Kong, mm-hmm. um, which allows the, the federal government to take certain uh, follow-on actions, but, uh, but you know, it's still a step in the legal process. Um, and they know that they're probably going to issue more bans on exports of uh, semiconductor-related technology. Uh, there's the talk about the outbound investment restrictions in high tech or potentially other areas as well. So they know that these actions are, are on the agenda and upcoming. There'll probably be some announcements about weapon sales to Taiwan or some such thing. So, again, I, I think that the trips have been oversold, and then now it's like we're experiencing a bit of a whiplash. Uh, 
So I think the best thing we could say is relations will continue to be how they are, which is, you know, pretty rocky. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, thanks, Ross. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. That's Ross Feingold, who is Business Development Director at SafePro Group over in Taipei. Thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. You can find more business and finance information from around Asia in my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. On tomorrow's program, I'm joined by Francis Lund, the CEO of Geo Securities, and Andrew Sullivan, founder of Asian Market Sense. And with a view from Australia is Toby Lawson, the CEO of Staten Partners. Bye for now. Money Talk 